0: Bonjour et bienvenue, je m'appelle Tegan Higginbotham et j'adore la France. But the first time I travelled there, I had an underwhelming experience. My expectations were too high, my travel sense was too low, and my fashion choices were, I'll be honest, they were questionable, to say the very least. Seriously, I've put up photos, I don't know what I was thinking. But the second time around, I had an absolutely fantastic time. And I think that most of that came down to knowing how to communicate. So this week, we're talking about language. Welcome to Ruler Mark. So here's a little something I didn't mention in episode two. Not long before my best friend, Beck, had invited me overseas that very first time, I'd gone through a bad breakup. I was seeing this guy who studied at NIDA, which is the National Institute of the Dramatic Arts. If you haven't heard of it, it's the same school that trained the likes of Kate Blanchett, Mel Gibson, and one of the Bananas in Pyjamas. That's right, only B1 was classically trained. And I'll be honest, if you watch it back, you can f***ing tell. And apparently it caused quite a bit of tension on set between the Bananas. They'd get into actual fights, and so B2 would rock up in the morning just covered in bruises. And then eventually, you know, they split. F*** you! <laughs> Anyway, Activoy and I broke up, right? So by the time I hopped on a plane that very first time, I probably wasn't in the best headspace. But the second time I visited Paris, I wasn't heartbroken, nor was I single. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, I had myself a man, and he was willing to travel with me. So in July 2015, Paul, that's his name, Paul and I hopped on an exceptionally cheap Air Malaysia flight, which may have been an error of judgment. I I will cover it in another episode. And we flew straight to Charles de Gaulle Airport. Then, severely jet-lagged but excited nevertheless, we caught a cab straight to Montmartre, where we booked ourselves a quaint little Airbnb on a street called Rue Lamarque, which was named after this very podcast. It's a fact. Don't look it up. And you know what? It didn't take me long to realise that with just the slightest shift in perspective and a little more understanding, Paris was suddenly everything I'd dreamed. The sun was shining, people were helpful and lovely. We just spent the days walking and eating crepes and walking some more. Seriously, we walked so much, my Fitbit actually detonated. For example, on one occasion, I had decided to walk Paul and I to the Catacombs, which is the underground city of the dead, or as we like to refer to it in Australia, Melbourne Central Train Station. I looked at the map and I went, yeah, yeah, that seems fine. That seems pretty doable. And Paul told me he had concerns about the distance, but I cheerfully ignored him because relationships. So off we went. We walked 15 kilometres. 15 kilometres there and back in dress shoes. Dress shoes because I had to look pretty in Paris. And I swear to God, by the time we got there, we looked like Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee on the brink of Mount Doom. You remember that scene? You know, the chapped lips, the blistering skin. Sam telling Frodo they should have taken the f***ing metro. But overall, it was just one of the loveliest trips of my life, and the best day in particular was when we took the train out to the Palace of Versailles, the home of Louis XV, Louis XVI and Kirsten Dunst. It's a short trip and I highly recommend everybody heading out there if you can, because the interiors of the palace are just magnificent, or at least that's what I've been told. Because by the time Paul and I got out there, we were a little low on cash, so we realised that we had to choose between either paying for a ticket to get into the palace or heading into the gardens for free and hiring a golf buggy. And because we're responsible, history-loving adults, we chose the buggy. So off we went to see Marie Antoinette's two petty palaces, but there was a catch. You see, the rules of the buggy clearly stated that if we went over time by even a minute we would have to pay for a whole new hour, which we simply couldn't afford. And it dawned on both Paul and I that maybe this was just some big scam. Maybe you couldn't actually get all the way through the vast suburb-sized garden to both palaces and around the lake and back again within an hour. So we decided that the only option was to fang it. And thus we began filming the latest edition in the Fast and Furious series, Versailles Drift. We were cutting corners, we were driving up muddy embankments at 45-degree angles. And then, to make the trip even more exciting, we decided to start playing a game called Indiana Jonesing, which is where one person has to keep driving the vehicle top speed while the other person had to jump out, perform some sort of, I don't know, forward roll or something like that, then jump back into the moving vehicle, all the while still looking fabulous. And I will point out that these golf buggies were fitted with all manner of safety implements such as seat belts and horns, but there is nothing more satisfying than ignoring both these things, hanging out the vehicle and yelling, beep, beep, coming through, while you do an impressive handbrake turn in front of a clutch of bewildered tourists. As I sit up top... Paris was different the second time around and I think the biggest change came down to the fact that I was trying to speak French as much as possible. Even if it was just making sure I started every conversation with bonjour instead of jumping straight into English, it was really appreciated. That said, I still think I did quite badly. For example, I would go into the same boulangerie every single day. And every single day, the woman behind the counter would give me the strangest look. And I couldn't figure out why until I realized that instead of saying, Bonjour, madame, je voudrais une baguette, s'il vous plaît. I'd been saying, Bonjour, madame, je m'appelle une baguette, s'il vous plaît. Just the dickhead Australian going, Hello, my name is Bread, please. But you know what? The lady who worked there could tell that I was trying my best. You know, I had little scripts written on my hands. I was was trying to use a new word every day. So she helped. She was so lovely and she helped. As opposed to that first time where I went there and I just expected everyone to figure it out for me. In fact, over the course of the whole trip, there was only one guy I met who literally knew zero English. And it happened because uh, I decided that I wanted to visit a hairdresser while overseas on the off chance that someone complimented me on it back home and I could go, oh, this? Oh. oh, yeah, I had it done in Paris. It's no biggie. It's fine. It's just what I do. So I found this lovely salon up in Montmartre and I met this very French hairdresser. I realized there was very little shared language between the two of us. So I was like, uh, um, uh une petite snip snip, s'il vous plaît. And he said, Oui. And I'm going to be honest, at that point, I wasn't sure if I was in for a really good haircut or a really bad vasectomy, but we went ahead and it worked out fine. But here's the question. Do you really need to know French in order to survive in Paris? Comedian Jackie Mifsford moved to Paris with nothing more than high school French to work with. So as we sat drinking wine in Melbourne with the trams rolling by, I asked her if she found that restrictive at all and how hard she had to work to learn a new language.
2: If I was in any other, any other French city, I would be fluent, fluent, fluent. Uh, Officially, my um, level is a B2. So it goes like it's intermediate, high level intermediate, whereas then there's C1 and C2, but that's like native language. So anyway, um, it just takes time because it's actually changing where young kids, like young Parisians, they're being told, you need to speak English to survive here. So you need to be um, good in English, so when they hear you have an accent, even if you haven't made a f-ing mistake in French, they go, but it's okay, we can speak English. Which I would yell at them, but I don't want to speak English. I'm here in France. Um, and uh, it was actually really scary when I first moved, but like any major city, you find your people. So I was hanging around with a lot of expats. It is actually possible to live there and not have a high level of French because you just shrug and point to shit. But um, I, That was my goal. I persevered. Uh, Even having a French boyfriend did not help because it was too hard for him to speak his own language to me. (laughs) They are not used to hearing mistakes in their language. Like, we're used to hearing broken English all the time. They're not. Uh, And I got uh, 19 hours a week intensive lessons in Paris uh, for a couple semesters to be good enough for people to listen to me, basically. (laughs) So I just came back from a trip to Europe after six years of not living there and I was just so excited that I'm in the metro, I understand everything. So comprehension is the first um, to sort of, uh, or the first thing you sort of learn and speaking is the hardest thing to do and the last thing you learn and the first thing to lose. So I just got in there, talked more. I know I'm very good at street slang and the reason why I got very good is because I would go where people wouldn't speak English. So I'd hang out in like Algerian bars where no one would speak English and it was just French. So I have this, like, a weird street kid Aladdin-style accent. I don't think I'm Aladdin. Um, but even some people who live there, there's so many expats and things, they, you don't actually need to speak French, which is terrible. In Paris. Mm. Anywhere else, yes, but in Paris, no.
0: Interessant. Très intéressant. And you know what? Jackie isn't the only person who feels that Paris is A-OK if je parle anglais which is the first rhyme I've ever done in French and I'm I'm very excited by that. Moving on though. Here's Katrina Lawrence, the author of Paris Dreaming and she shared her take on language as well.
3: It's so much easier though when you start in school because you've got time to rote learn and yeah. learn all of the rules. It's hard when you're a bit older because a lot of what helps it come naturally is based on rote learning. So you just know how to conjugate a certain verb and we don't necessarily have the time when we're older to learn it in the same way. But... I started learning at a time when it was French was taught in a very formal way and you had to speak how you wrote it. And now I think when, when you go to France, like I've got friends who have moved there for work reasons. And maybe it's the part of Paris that you're living in, but like out in the sort of 3rd, 10th, 11th everyone speaks English there. they are all these like, new generation that, you know, they're working on apps, they're in these WeWork kind of co-working spaces. The menus at cafes are in English, and it's not in a touristy way. It's because it's considered cool. and they mm. all So these um, people I know who have moved to France recently, to Paris, without having learnt French at uni or at school... They actually speak in a much more flowing way than I do because my problem is the problem with the way I learn is that you had to be so perfect yeah when you spoke it's like in my head I write it and then I'm always scared oh my gosh is it subjunctive or am I getting it you know that is it masculine or feminine and I don't throw myself into it and then I am not so natural whereas my friends have sort of just learned on the hop there they their grammar is shot and they don't care and nobody else cares because they, like, they all understand each other. It's like they've got this kind of franglais going on. So I think the more and more you go there, the more loosened up it will be, especially more out east. Mm. Like, maybe 16th is a bit different. I think it's getting easier and easier.
0: D'accord, je comprends. Je n'ai pas besoin de prendre les français. Mais si je veux apprendre les français. Because I'll level with you, fitting in isn't the only reason I've taken up a second language. Now, I'm not going to make a huge thing out of this, But some days I feel like my memory is just terrible, like it's shot, just gone. And I'm not only talking the short term things like, where are my keys? Did I reply to that text? Why am I holding this bloody knife? But my ability to remember things like faces and names and numbers is getting sketchier and sketchier. I don't know if other people are feeling this. Please share your experiences with me if you can remember to do so. But learning a language has proven positive effects on cognitive function. And I quote, Researchers have shown that the bilingual brain can have better attention and task-switching capacities than the monolingual brain, thanks to its developed ability to inhibit one language while using another. In addition, bilingualism has positive effects at both ends of the age spectrum. Bilingual children as young as seven months can better adjust to environmental changes, while bilingual seniors can experience less cognitive decline. And that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, I think that just sounds fantastic. Let's all do that. P.S. I would happily tell you where that quote came from, but I have forgotten. Whee! Not long ago, I visited Margot José, head teacher and exam coordinator at Alliance Francaise, to share her thoughts on how difficult it was for her to pick up English and how hard it is for her students to learn French.
4: Uh, Well, I grew up in uh, Aix-en-Provence, so in the south of France in uh, Provence. So I studied uh, linguistics and then when I finished this degree I was like what am I going to do with this degree Mm. Um, and then I continued with a a master's in teaching French as a foreign language and uh, I came to Australia for an internship so I did my internship here at the Alliance um, and another one at the University of Melbourne and after that I just continued working uh, here at the Alliance. How difficult was it to learn English? Uh, Well it was a long process Mm. Um, so I studied at school, but in France, um, so we sort of learned British English and things that are very formal. So when I first arrived in Australia, I was way too polite and way too formal. And then I guess I continued with um, American series, American movies, but I never really learned Australian English uh, until I came here. But then obviously having an Australian partner helps. Uh, but it's still, uh, I'm still learning, obviously, um, especially in writing, because I don't get to write in English very often, so okay. that's, uh, that's a bit hard for me, but yeah. What oh. drives me crazy are a few words. Um, I've practiced thing, saying them, but they're really hard. Like squirrel. There's also wholeheartedly. Yeah, I hate these two words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It's really tricky as well for me when I'm at a restaurant here in Australia and I want to order, well crème brûlée, I have to say crème brûlée, otherwise no one understands me. I guess something else that's tricky for French people learning English is um, the difference between the long and short vowels. So for example, I don't know if I can say that in the podcast, but the difference between um, sheets, and shit, or beach and bitch, yeah, um, yeah. so that led to very uh, funny situations for me. What do you find brings
0: people here to learn French? Is it for business? Is it because they, they want to travel? What are you finding most?
4: Well, we have quite a variety of different profiles. Um, we have you know, high school students who don't even choose to, to learn French. Their parents made them uh, learn French. We have uh, obviously young people who fell in love with a, with a French person. Uh, we have, uh, I don't know, newly retired who bought a house in France. Oh. Professionals who want to, you know, take part in meetings in French. Uh, lots of different profiles and they're, they're all fine. And that's what's really good as well, to have all these different profiles in, in the classroom. Frustration is
0: a big thing I've encountered in my on-again, off-again journey to learning French. For example, I really thought that the whole process was going to be a lot like this.
4: après moi. Bonjour, je t'adore.
5: Tu es magnifique.
0: Instead, it's been more like this. But that's not the worst of it. Most of my frustration has come down to me not having a good enough grasp of my own language, let alone the ability to learn another. Margot mentioned understanding grammatical structures, and this is a big problem for Australians because we just don't know that stuff. And this becomes very difficult because eventually you get to a point where you realise that in order to know how to conjugate a word or properly structure a French sentence, you have to know what nouns, pronouns, verbs, etc. actually are. Now, I'm not saying that you don't know what a pronoun is, dear listener. I wouldn't say that. Except you don't, okay? And instead,
4: you're going to have to spend a lot of hours like this. Please identify the noun in this sentence. Please identify the adverb in this sentence. Fuck. Just point to a word, any word.
0: Fuck. Okay. Je m'appelle
1: done with this shit.
0: <laughs> but let's just talk about this for a second. Was I just a shithead in primary school by refusing to learn grammar? Or is there something else at play here? I spoke with Simon Oates, an incredible performer who specializes in bringing cutting-edge research from neuroscience and psychology, together with years of direct experience as a live storyteller and presenter, to deliver an approach to communication that is strategic, practical, and evidence-based. Simon is also a former high school teacher, so I asked him about nouns, verbs, and, you know, the the other ones, the, um, the describing thingos. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Simon. Now, be honest with me. Is it my fault that I don't know what a pronoun is?
6: No, look, you know, you're in the same boat as I am and from what uh, my little bit of research told me, most people from the sort of late 70s on who were in the Australian school system, we didn't learn grammar. We didn't learn it explicitly. It was deliberately taken out of the Australian curriculum.
0: And the idea there, if I'm correct, is that we were meant to learn via a whole language approach. And as students, we were meant to pick up things such as grammar and syntax through osmosis, that that would just sink in. Is this okay?
6: It's an interesting one, you know. I think it depends on what you want to do with language, right? Like, it, from my understanding, if, if you hadn't started uh, attempting to learn another language, you might not have come up against this. Um, So you might have well have gone through your whole life as many people do not really being aware of the fact that they didn't have an explicit understanding of grammar and uh, not being aware that that was a problem or a limitation for them in any way. Um, You know I think the idea from from my limited understanding and I just want to say straight up I'm no expert on this I'm just speaking as uh, a former English teacher who wanted to do um, certain things with the kids I was working with. I wanted to help them to start to use language in more complex ways and one of the limitations I came up against straight away was that we couldn't um, have a meta-conversation about language. We couldn't talk about the parts of speech and how they were choosing to use them in alternative ways because we simply didn't have a shared language of labels for words in terms of their function in language.
0: Have you gone back and taught yourself these things since?
6: Yeah, that's essentially what I had to do. So I suppose to give you the history of it, what I started realising was um, that a lot of the problem with the way the kids I was working with was writing was that they had very unsophisticated ways of using language and they weren't being very creative with the way they wrote sentences and constructed their thoughts and this came not long after I had spent a year touring uh, Shakespeare shows in schools and by comparison I um, I had been amazed by the complexity of how Shakespeare can write a sentence. So I actually, I pulled out earlier when I was thinking of this, um, an example. So I was performing Macbeth and there's this sentence in Macbeth. Can I read it to you? Okay, so it's one thought and it, it's a very complex one. It's this, this is one sentence. If it were done when 'tis done, Then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could tremble up the consequence and catch with his surcease success that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here, but here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. Right? That's one sentence. And, you know, I'm sure you know that a lot of modern writing, the emphasis is on use short sentences to be clear which I get, and I attempt in my writing most of the time to do that. But there's this thing about these older writers who were extraordinary writers that one of the things they did was write incredibly long sentences. And it took me a long time to even understand what that was about. It was like I had to expand my cognitive ability to be able to Get to the meaning of that sentence. I felt like my brain had not been educated with the level of um, linguistic sophistication to be able to understand Shakespeare's sentence.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
6: With the price of just
1: about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: I can certainly relate to that feeling. You know, when trying to dissect French, I feel like I go to my toolbox hoping to find something that I can use. You know, I've tried my best to fill those gaps, but I just don't have the tools to understand French in the same way that you felt like you didn't have the tools to understand Shakespeare.
6: Yeah, which was exactly what happened when I started thinking, oh, I want to play some language games with the kids, get them to write the same sentence with the same words five different ways. Do you know what I mean? Just these kind of things to show them, yeah, you've written a sentence, but have another look at it. See if there's a more complex or or more concise way you can write that sentence. But you can't have that conversation unless you can say, yeah, you could try putting the object at the start of the sentence and not the end, or the predicate, or um, perhaps you should go through your writing and remove adjectives Unnecessary adjectives right? And you try these things And most kids will look, give you blank stares Because they don't know what Those words refer to um, So At year 10 I decided I had to go back To uh, square one And teach them The basics of grammar which is what we call The parts of speech So you know gra- grammar is far more complex Than just can you name it Do you know what a noun is Um, That's the beginning point of grammar being able to name the parts of speech Then the big stuff is about right now. Let's talk about how you can use those parts of speech Um, So yeah, what I did in the end was I um, took them all down to the drama studio and Outside the drama studio. I divided them into two tribes and said when we walk through the door You can't use English you have to make up your own language and we're gonna have a competition. You're gonna take all the big objects in the drama studio and build a fort. And whoever builds the most effective fort, which tribe will win. And in order to do it, because they're so heavy, they were gonna to have to invent language so they could collaborate with each other. And um, at the end of it, we started taking their language and going, okay, well, what is it? What, what are these words? Which of them are nouns? Which of them are verbs, Etc. Etc. And we sort of expanded on these lessons and did all kinds of games until they wrote an anthropological um, glossary of terms or they, an English Uvagu dictionary. Um, uh, and by the end of it, they got it. They got What they got fundamentally is um, here's, here's the basic purpose of language is to help us cooperate, enact things, persuade each other um, language has to be active. It is active. You know, the basic um, sentence has a subject and a predicate. It's about someone or something and something that is happening to them or they are doing. Um, it's, a, it's a tiny little story. A sentence is, a, is the beginnings of a story always, and then it just builds in complexity from there.
0: I am just going to put this out there. I am legitimately jealous of your students. I didn't get to build forts. This is Bullshit. But what I'm picking up on in all this is that you took the initiative to educate yourself in in grammar once you'd already become a teacher. So this wasn't necessary before you got your degree?
6: It's a really interesting one. I, you know, I did my uh, teaching degree as a kind of postgrad l- later in life and, and I really was paying attention. <laughs> so compared to my very first undergrad degrees where my consciousness was in various places, um... And no, looking back, we didn't explicitly learn grammar. We didn't go back over this stuff. Then again, my my training was for primary teaching, and I ended up teaching in high schools. But um, so I don't know. Maybe maybe t- people who are studying education at a um, for secondary school at this point are more explicitly learning grammar. But the, but you know, the the hardest thing is. We have a generation of teachers who didn't learn grammar as students. And this is the problem, once you take a a subject out of the curriculum, if you leave it out for an entire generation, who who do you, when you decide to put it in, who are you going to get to teach that?
0: Because in your research, grammar isn't the only thing we've lost over time.
6: No, no, we've lost core subjects. Like if you look at the core subjects of what we used to call a classical education, uh, grammar was big. Rhetoric was big, Latin was big And you know, rhetoric's an interesting one Because when we use that word Or or the way we use it now It's often um, a very belittled word We talk about politicians speaking in empty rhetoric Um, But it used to be the core of the education system And and it interested me Because I started looking at Well, what did Shakespeare study? If he's so brilliant with language What was he learning about when he went to school? And very quickly you come up rhetoric and rhetoric is actually rhetoric is the art of persuasion or the art of communication but it's very much about how um, the art of playing with the form of language to add emphasis to make something more convincing to heighten the emotional effect of language and the way that it was studied if you go back through Shakespearean text and you'll find stuff online where people Um, analyze this, he's using what they call rhetorical tropes um, over and over and over again, and there are hundreds of them. And rhetoric was also the core of the Greek education system and the Latin Roman education system, you know, the kind of the roots of our civilization. Rhetoric was very, very important. Um, and to me it's not just that it helped us to be able to play with language and use language in more powerful and uh, creative ways it's also that the way we learn language defines the way we think and that's what it comes down to for me is that as we're becoming simpler and simpler with language you know look at how we text or or tweet um, we're simplifying the way we think um, And that's a dangerous thing in our times. We live in very complex times, politically, socially, environmentally. And um, the more I see people thinking in simple black and white terms, I think, oh, Jesus, we're doomed. We've got to be able to think in more complex ways than this, you know? Um, But I think we're limited by what we, you know, when we're trying to think rationally, well, that way of thinking is based on language. And so if you have a limited set of formal tools to the way you can use language, then you're limited in the way you can think about concepts. Just to expand on that a little bit, I, it is one of the regrets of my life that I have not um, learned uh, second language really effectively. You know, I, I have a, enough French to get myself probably more into trouble than out of trouble. Um, but it's very, very basic. And normally, it, my experiences in France was most of the time, they'd look at me <laughs> with that particular Parisian expression and say, je ne comprends pas. Yeah, I don't understand you. Um, but, you know, one of the things that f- I'm speaking to friends who, who really do fluently speak other languages is, is, again, that offers you other ways to think about the world, because each language has its, you know, unique formal structures and things, and you just, you have another rich way to think about life, the kind of core concepts, Think things like the fact that the Greeks famously have eight words for love. Well, that just means you can think about love in a more sophisticated way, right? As opposed to the way that I find myself and many people I know get tangled up and confused about love because we're, we put it all into one big, big word, which really can't cope with all the things we mean by that.
0: Thank you so much, Simon. Simon paints an incredible picture when discussing language. It's more than just being able to politely order food when visiting another country, although that is very important. It's about being able to communicate with your fellow man and in doing so, have a better understanding of what makes us who we all are. Still, that doesn't help me to understand conjugation, you know? So to discuss some of the scarier concepts when it comes to the French language, I spoke with a woman who has had to deal with my bumbling, stuttering and outright confusion for quite some time now, my French tutor and the ever patient anne so of RuPanam.
5: It's, well, for me, obviously, English is harder. Well, not so much anymore. But uh, I think, no, French might be a little bit harder to learn because there are so many quirks, which English does too, I guess. But the thing, English doesn't have conjugation and that makes it easier than French, just that. And then lots of things in English are harder. Um, But I would say overall, maybe French is a tiny bit.
0: Can you explain as basically as possible what is conjugation?
5: So, conjugation is when I change a verb. So, first you need to know what's a verb. (laughs) Not not (laughs) all Australians know that. So, when you know it's a verb in French, we conjugate it. It means we've got six different ways of adapting the verb to whoever we're talking about. So, if I do something, it's not going to be the same thing if that. As if you do something, yeah. So in the, in English, you've got one conjugation. is third person singular, he and she. You do change the verb. You do conjugate the verb with he and she. You add an s to yeah. it. That's it. So that's conjugation. So I was a bit amazed at yeah how people didn't know grammar. I didn't know that because in France, everyone knows grammar. Even if you haven't finished school, you know basic grammar so you know what's a verb we do that in primary school and we spend hours and hours underlining what's the verb what's the subject what's the object and it's boring but then it's actually quite useful later in life um so yeah it was a bit it took me a while to get my head around this and accept it I was like but you should know that like you have to know this and like no actually it's okay you don't know it you were not told okay and but yeah for us it's a bit weird at the start i guess yeah yeah Well, what's really hard when who anyone learns a language, a foreign language, is that you tend to translate literally from your language to the other language. And very often, this is not going to work. We just say things differently. Um, So that's the the main thing. And that's not only between French and English. It's anything. And I still do it sometimes in English. I take a French expression and I translate it to English and obviously it doesn't work. And now I do it the other way around too. I take an English expression, say it in French, and I'm like, no, that doesn't sound right. So um, that's the main thing that, people have to realize it's like, yeah, it's not the same language, so you say one thing in English, we say it very differently in French, and we're not going to use the exact same words to say the same thing. Yeah. So in English you say, I'm having a coffee, right? Well in French you don't use the verb to have, to say I'm having a coffee, you say I'm taking a coffee, mm-hmm. or I'm drinking a coffee, but you don't say I'm having a coffee. And you don't say, I'm having a sandwich, whatever. You say, I'm taking, I take, I took. Yeah. So yeah, French is a gender language. So the table is feminine, happens to be female. That's really random and weird. And I find it random and weird. This bit is not particularly sexist because it's just random. But what, it is, what is sexist is basically when you have two, um, two people... Let's say two people, a man and a woman, and you're gonna need an adjective. So, adjectives in French are also male or female. So, if the table, female table, is white, white is gonna be female as well. So, it's another word. Yeah, and the white male is gonna be a slightly different word. Yeah. yeah? So, if we've got two people, masculine wins. So the adjective is going to be masculine. If we've got 50 women and one man, masculine wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is sexist. And that was invented in, that was decided in the 19th century by, I think, a religious, like a priest or someone, um, who said, well, men are obviously superior uh, so we're going to change the, the language to reflect that. So they, they put on, they invented a certain numbers of rules that changed the language to make it more, to, to make it more obvious that male was superior. Uh, so it is a sexist language for real.
0: There are complications with regards to politeness in the sense that there's the formal and informal. So, vu versus tu, all that sort of stuff. If you're a tourist, you would recommend always going the formal first. Yeah. Is that right? Yes, yes,
5: you need to use vous if you're going to, if you don't know someone, you're formal. So Australians are very informal. And when I first came here, I was very impressed by that too. Like you call the bank and they ask you for your first name and they call you by your first name. Whereas in France, the bank is never going to use your first name ever. Um, things like that. So, strands are much, much more informal. Uh, French people were quite distant and polite, basically. So, everyone is Monsieur or Madame and definitely use the formal form of you, which is vous.
0: What things would you recommend when it comes to language in particular that will just make people uh, ensure they have a much better time in France?
5: So yes, you need when you enter a shop you need to say hello, and when you leave the shop, whether you buy something or not doesn't matter. You have to say thank you, goodbye, maybe have a nice day too. Uh, so you don't leave a shop without saying anything that's considered as very rude. Uh, and that's really the, the main thing. Apart from that, if you do that, people are gonna be friendly. If you don't do that, people are gonna be less friendly probably. And don't call don't call waiters garçon. It's not a thing anymore. So it's used. I think it's used to be okay. Maybe up until the sixties or something. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure when it stopped. But now it's definitely not okay. So when you want to call the waiter, you say "s'il vous plaît." Yeah, go "s'il vous plaît." Okay. Yeah, and yeah. Also, don't say "I want something." Just go. Maybe go "je voudrais." Something like that, um, and yeah, if you just do this very basic, you'll be fine. Yeah, and you don't you don't ask people how are you if you don't know them. Still, after ten years in Australia, yeah. I'm still a bit shocked when people ask me how am I like at the shop. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, great. Can I shop? like <laughs> I still like I still find it a bit. Maybe it's too close or something because right. we do we are actually quite distant with people we don't know. So if you say bonjour, merci, see, that that doesn't really that's not too intimate (laughs) but like asking someone you don't know how are you also like we're quite honest like we know that the person doesn't really care (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so if I don't care I'm not gonna ask okay yeah yeah so we don't chit chat so much with people in shops I'm talking mainly in shops and restaurants we don't chat so much we're polite we say hello goodbye have a nice day all that we don't ask them about their lives Um, I think definitely if you want to learn French, you need to have lessons, so learning on your own, you can only go that far. You learn a few words, you can use an app on your phone, and you're going to learn a few nice words. And if you just want to do that, it's fine. But if you really want to learn the language, you need lessons. It is quite a lot of work, so you need to pre- be prepared for it to be hard. Mm-hmm. Often people think they're going to learn French in a year or two and they'll be fine. No, it takes much longer than that. Mm-hmm. So you need really to put in the work. And really de- it only depends on how far you want to go. Like Some people are happy with just you know, scrapping by, saying a few things. That's fine so but yeah if you want to be serious about it you have to work quite hard it's not easy but it's fascinating because you're gonna learn not only about the language but you learn it's a whole world that opens up to you i don't know if you have this experience but suddenly you learn about culture and you learn about your own culture because you're like oh these people do that and we do this here are we quite different oh that's mm. what we do here and it's just like it's just a new world that opens up to you. It's not only about learning a language. So I always think that people who don't know another language miss out. Yeah. They don't know, but they miss out because it's, it's a very enriching thing to do, I think.
0: Well, there you have it, folks. That's all we have for this week. For now, I'd like to thank our special guests. Comedian Jackie Mifsud. I saw her show Perfect the other day, and it's perfect. It's really great. Make sure you check it out at Comedy Festival. The tickets are available now. Katrina Lawrence, the Paris Dreamer. Grab her book, Paris Dreaming, in bookstores or online. Margot José at Alliance Francaise. You can enroll in one of their many, many courses. Search Alliance Francaise online. Simon Oates. You can find out more about his incredible work at simonoates.com. And so from Rupanam, if you'd like to contact her for tuition, which I highly recommend, head to www.rupanam.com. That's spelled R-U-E-P-A-N-A-M-E. Again, a big thanks to Laure Briere for the use of her beautiful song, vol, and my sound producer, Paul Verhoeven. Gosh, you're hanging in there. If you want to get in contact, head to the Ruler Mark discussion group via my Facebook page, Teagan Higginbotham, or you can also keep in touch via rulermark.com. But before we go, I do have one more very, very special guest. I asked a few friends within the Ruler Mark discussion group for their tips on learning a second language. Anne Verhoeven recommends the Coffee Break French podcasts, uh, and they are they're really, really good. The hosts are Scottish, so it kinda sounds like the cast of Outlander, you know, that Scottish porn show are trying to teach you to speak French. It's it's really satisfying. Violetta M. Bagia, author of the Heart of Darkness series, says that immersion is key. Violetta speaks three languages and says that being immersed in the culture with native speakers is really the best way. A few friends have recommended the Mikel Thomas method. I, I don't know what that is, but it sounds pretty sexy, I'll be honest. And my sister says that episodes of Star Trek are available in French, so that we should get onto that. But here's the thing watching films and television shows in the language you're hoping to learn can actually be a wonderful way of picking things up. And what better way to do this than by taking some time to visit the Alliance Francaise French Film Festival? I was fortunate enough to speak with the artistic director of the Alliance Francaise Film Festival and the cultural attache of the French embassy, Philippe Platel. And he gave me the lowdown on this year's event, which is running in Melbourne right up until the 10th of April. Well, first of all, congratulations, 30 years. How is it all coming together?
1: (laughs) It's, It's incredible, actually. Every year... Uh, we have more people attending, and even last year, 185,000 spectators, wow. almost,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, nationally. It's, it's, it's really impressive, really impressive.
2: This year's
0: program seems to be particularly, I mean, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly large program. There's so much to choose from, but it's a really light program. There's a lot of comedy.
1: So it will be the biggest uh, lineup uh, in the history of the festival, with 54 films uh which I'm very happy with because it's a celebration and I wanted to uh I wanted this edition to be a showcase of uh, very diverse uh, genres of uh, of films. And we will have a special new section dedicated to our films and genre films, slasher movies, zombies, etc. Mm-hmm. because actually it's part of our history as well. I was wondering why these horror films were so uh, appealing for a certain audience, and particularly the young ones. Probably because it's a different angle to understand the world we are living in, to understand the different crises, all the problems, and particularly in France, for instance, it's not, uh, it means something that there is, this year, a zombie film taking place in paris just a, uh, a few years after the the terrorism terrorism attacks uh it makes sense indeed and uh, so there will be this section dedicated to this very uh, this underworld of, uh, of the of the cinema and even the opening film the trouble with you is also a blend of different genres of films: uh uh screwball comedies cop uh, cop Film Thriller, a bit of uh, uh, Burlesque as well. It's uh, um, I, This is why I, I, I thought it would be a good opening film.
0: The numbers have been going up incredibly. Every year, more and more Australians are coming to the French Film Festival. But I'm yeah, sure that yeah. I'm sure that there are still so many people out there who haven't visited yet. Looking at the the um the lineup this year, there is so much to choose from. If this was somebody's first time so they don't get intimidated, what would you suggest they start with? Do you recommend coming along on opening night or just taking a gamble? I
1: think there are so many good films and it's what I wanted this lineup to be done for is to make sure that each time someone goes to a, to cinemas and to a to Paris cinemas, there will be a good French film to see. You can go there by chance and find something good to see. But there's no film which would be intimidating, I think, for a newcomer. Um, there are some cliches about French films and about the French film festival. It should, it, it, it's supposed to be a bit intellectual, and um, but it's not. And this is why I wanted to uh, have this new section with Jean Films, because Jean Films are open for everyone, and particularly for the young audience. Think or Swim as well, which is the big success of 2018 in France which attracted four million spectators. So this one is also probably, is the perfect feel-good dramedy connected to the problems in France, the crisis and everything. It's a long love affair uh, between French and Australia. The first Australian films were done by collaboration between French and Australian artists. So our friendship is quite old, actually.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure.
0: Thank you so much, Philippe Platel, and thank you, everyone, for listening to Ruler Mark. See you next Tuesday.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more